feel like that old Verizon commercial. Can you hear me now? Good morning. Good morning. We're going to be working through the book of Philippians this morning. Uh, in just a minute, I'm going to read all of through chapter number one, and then we're going to work our way through the first two verses of the book of Philippians. But by way of introduction this morning, I, I wanted to kind of look at the beginning of the Philippian church, which we see laid out for us in the book of Acts, chapter number 16. Uh, in Acts 16, the apostle Paul and Silas and his ministry team begin what is now known as their second missionary journey. If you have maps in the back of your Bible, there's probably a map in the back that has all three of Paul's missionary journey journeys in them. And in Acts 16, Paul and Silas are beginning their second missionary journey. Now, initially, they were just going to retrace their steps from their first ministry journey and go to all the churches that were planted and just try to encourage them in the Lord. But as they begin retracing their steps, uh, a young man named Timothy joins them in the city of Lystra. Uh, Paul wrote two epistles specifically to Timothy. We're going to see him mentioned in the book of Philippians as well. And then Paul's plan was to travel through the region of Galatia up to Asia, but the Holy Spirit stopped him. The Holy Spirit said, I don't want you to go there. That may be your plan, but that's not my plan. The Holy Spirit also pre uh, prevented Paul and his team from going north into Bithynia, and so Paul and his team, they just turn and they head to the coastal city of Troas. And it was in this city, Paul has a vision from the Holy Spirit of a Macedonian man pleading for help, saying, we need you to come and help minister to us. So in Acts 16, verse 10, Paul and his team, they're now joined by Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. They're now joined by Luke. They begin their journey, and they eventually land in the city of Philippi. Now, this was the first time the Gospel had gotten into the continent of Europe. The church at Philippi was the first church in Europe. Now, Philippi was not the capital of the region of Macedonia, uh, but it was a leading city in this region. Uh, many would have considered it a miniature version of Rome. It was under Roman law. We'll see that come up later in Acts chapter number 16. And after being in the city several days, Paul and his team, uh, they usually would go into a synagogue and they would reason with the Jews, but this being a Roman European city, there wasn't enough Jews in the city to form a synagogue. So after being there several days, Paul and his team, they go and they jump into a ladies' prayer meeting that's meeting down by the river. Kind of reminds me of the song, I went down to the river of prayer, then Paul shows up and he shows them the good old way. Um, and so they meet several of these God-fearing ladies. Uh, Paul preaches the gospel to them. They open their hearts and they receive the Lord. Uh, one of these ladies in the group is mentioned by name. Her name was Lydia. She was this uh, influential businesswoman. She then opens up her home to Paul and company, and her home becomes the meeting place for what would become the Philippian church. Well, after they meet this uh, women's prayer group, uh, they meet a slave girl who is possessed by a demon, and this demon would tell the future through this slave girl, and the girl's owners would make a large fortune by what this demon would do through her. But as Paul and his team meet her, they cast the demon out of her. Of course, her owners become furious because now they just lost their source of income. She places her faith in Christ, but the owners are upset because now the demon's out of her. Now she can't tell the future anymore, and so they have Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into jail. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not like on the checklist for planning a church, get beaten and thrown into prison. But I love how Paul and Silas respond. Look at Acts 16, verse 25. The Bible says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. One of the things I love about the book of Philippians is that the very backdrop, the very beginning of this church is joy-filled confidence, despite circumstances, 
because of the work of God. Paul and Silas were literally singing while their feet were in stocks. They are in jail. They were just beaten. As we're going to see, they didn't get a fair trial. But even in this moment, they are filled with joy and confidence, and they are praying and singing praises to God. A very early Christian, very early and prolific Christian author was a man named Tertullian. He was born in 160 AD. He lived in Carthage, which was a Roman province in Africa. He said about this passage, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. And that's the type of joy-filled confidence that we see the Holy Spirit gives us despite our confidences, despite our circumstances, because of the work of God. But the Bible in Acts 16 goes on. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew a sword and he was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Bible goes on to record how his entire family comes to know Christ. Well, the next morning, Paul tells the city officials, hey, look, guys, uh, we're Roman citizens, and you guys just beat us and threw us in jail without a trial. You can't do that under Roman law. So these city officials get scared, and so in order to appease Paul and Silas, they come and they escort them out, the, out of jail, and they just kind of urge them to leave town. Like, would you guys just go? <laughs> we, this whole thing has been a debacle. Would you guys just go? But before they do, Paul and Silas head back over to Lydia's home to encourage this brand new church. And verse 40 indicates that there are now more people who have placed their faith in Christ through this entire ordeal because it says Paul encouraged the brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but again, this is not the way we would want to start a church. Persecution and oppression, beaten and thrown into prison. We have one influential businesswoman, we have a blue-collar jailer, and we have a girl who is a slave who just got a demon cast out of her, and a bunch of brothers and sisters. But what I find so amazing about this story is the way the Spirit of God just worked so mightily through it all. We have a group of ladies placing their trust in Christ, demons being cast out, joy in the middle of persecution, chains are literally being broken, and a church begins. And I just want to remind us, church, as we look at how this church was birthed, even though we find ourselves in a difficult and hard season, this is an opportunity for the Spirit of God to move. And it's my prayer that the Spirit does something special in our lives in the days ahead, just like what we see happening here in Acts 16. Well, fast forward 10 years. Paul is back in prison. Now he's awaiting trial to determine if he's going to live or die. Epaphroditus, a faithful, spirit-filled man in the church at Philippi, nearly dies while bringing an offering from the church at Philippi to the Apostle Paul. And now Paul sends the letter of Philippians back with Epaphroditus to what some might argue was Paul fav Paul's favorite church. He calls them his crown jewel. And he writes this book to encourage the hearts of believers and urges them, and through the Holy Spirit, he urges us to rejoice in the Lord. Joy is a spiritual grace that we all need to experience. Even though we find ourselves in a season of stress, anxiety, hurt, betrayal, anger, I mean, you name it, church, we're all feeling it. 
But if we're not careful, we will allow our circumstances to steal our God-given joy from our hearts. We need an abundant, overflowing joy to fill our souls. And as we work through the book of Philippians, the Spirit of God is going to point us to that joy. This little book is also going to point us towards holiness. This is where Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. True Christian joy is a fruit of holy living because it brings our lifestyle into alignment with our identity in Christ. It always kind of bothers me a little bit when people say, God doesn't care about your happiness. He cares about your holiness. Now, it's true. Holiness is often uncomfortable for our flesh. It's true. Holiness grows in pain and suffering, and it takes away our comfort, and we don't like that. But I believe with all of who I am, one of the keys to experiencing authentic, spirit-given joy is living a holy lifestyle. True joy, true happiness is a fruit of living a holy life because you are bringing your lifestyle into alignment with who God has declared you to be. Among other things, this book also shows us the joy that is found when we partner together and we come together in unity to advance the kingdom of God. So let's turn, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Philippians chapter number one. Like I said at the beginning, we're going to work through verses number one and two in the message this morning. Uh, But each week, I'm going to read the entire chapter that we will be preaching in, even if we're only going to be working through a few verses. And so by the time we get done with this series, we all might have the entire book of Philippians memorized, and that is absolutely okay. Uh, If you are physically able, let me encourage you to stand as we read Philippians chapter number one. Beginning of verse number one, the Bible says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for you in in, in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it's right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Those who preach, or these preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. 
because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that, because of my coming to you, your boasting in Christ, Jesus, may abound. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For this, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint us as a church this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit would anoint my words this morning. Lord, you know my heart. You know where I'm at. I just want to publicly thank you for stripping away every confidence, Lord. Thank you for putting me in a place of utter dependence on you. Lord, it is hard. It is uncomfortable. It, it, it's not what we would want. But we know we are here because it, it, it is your will that we are here. And so we rest in that this morning. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would anoint your words to be proclaimed to this church family. And I pray that they would bring good news to the poor. I pray that they would heal the brokenhearted. I pray that they would be liberty being proclaimed to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. I pray that they would proclaim your favor that they would comfort those who mourn and provide for those who mourn. Lord, I pray that you would give us as a church a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festival oil instead of mourning, splendid clothes instead of despair, and we will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify you. Not ourselves, not our name, not the name of the church, but your name. Because yours is the name above every name. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would fill us. I pray that your spirit would anoint me to preach your word. I pray that it would anoint the church family to receive your word. Lord, keep me from saying anything that I should not. Put in my mind things that need to be said, even if it's not written down. We love you. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, one of the unique things that we notice uh, right off the bat about the book of Philippians is that the Apostle Paul doesn't use his title as apostle as he begins addressing this church. 
He just begins by calling himself and Timothy servants. And throughout the scripture, Paul does use his title as apostle. That wasn't a wrong thing of him to do as the Spirit of God led him to do that. In fact, there was times when he was offering harsh words of rebuke to other churches and he just flat out told them, look, if you don't believe me, you're not believing God. Now, if that wasn't filled by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit didn't anoint him to say those words, that would be crazy arrogant. And so there's nothing wrong with the Apostle Paul using his title, but we don't see him starting that way here in the book of Philippians. He just begins by calling himself and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. Now we know as we read throughout the book, Paul is the writer of Philippians, but he includes Timothy in this greeting possibly because Timothy also had a great love for this church. We're going to see that later in chapter number two. Timothy was also a proven example of what it meant to be a spirit-filled servant. And so as Paul begins addressing this church, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, the only other time the Greek word for servant here, the Greek word is doulos, the only other time this word is used in this epistle is in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, to describe Jesus. When Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who took on the form of a servant, that word there is doulos. That's the same word that he's using to describe himself and Timothy. And so what it seems like the Apostle Paul is doing here by just saying, hey, we're just servants of Jesus Christ, is he is modeling one of the things that he is trying to teach throughout this epistle. And that is a life of authentic joy is found in being a totally dedicated servant of Jesus. Which leads us to our first thought this morning, we are servants. Paul identifies as a servant. Now, if you were to translate this word more literally, it's, it's actually the literal word is slave. And so Paul is saying, look, we are just slaves. We are servants to our master, King Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28, Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. Don't get all about your title. Don't get all about your authority. Don't get all about your position, Jesus is saying. He goes on to say, on the contrary, in my kingdom, we do things differently. He says, on the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Strong language. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, being a servant or being a slave of Jesus does not mean God needs our labor. God doesn't need anything. And the book of Psalms tells us if he did, he wouldn't tell us because he's God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God doesn't need anything from us. Jesus is not the benefactor of our service. But it does mean we live to serve him, often through serving others. And when we live as servants of God, when we live with this mindset, I, I'm just a servant of the king, we actually are the ones that become the benefactors of sanctification and life, of joy. Paul said in Romans 6, 20 through 22, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regards to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from those things which you're now ashamed of? What was the fruit of being a slave to sin? Paul answers, the outcome of those things is death. But now... Now, since you've been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit. What is it? Which results in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life. When we live in service to Christ with just this humble mindset that just says, I'm just a servant of the king. 
we become the beneficiaries of sanctification and life joy. So whatever our occupation is, you don't have to be in vocational ministry to be a servant of God. Whatever your vocation is, whatever your job is, you are a servant of God. So tomorrow morning when you go to work and you clock in, you are there primarily to serve God, to advance His kingdom, whether you're working at Walmart or you're a CEO or at a gas station, you are there as a servant of God. And when you clock out and when you go home, your service isn't done. You still go home to serve God by ministering to your family. Servants don't have the mindset that we expect to be served. It's not about me. We, we, we don't want positions to make ourselves look good. We don't want positions to try to build our own platform. The Apostle Paul, he's the Apostle Paul for crying out loud. And he's just like, we're just servants of God. Our goal is to not make our name known, but Christ's name known. And we do that by serving. We have the same heart as John the Baptist. He increases, we decrease. John 3.30. We don't get to make the rules. We're just servants. We just show up and follow Jesus. Because of all that he has done for us, how could we do anything but just give our lives in reckless service to him? Being a servant means, as we're going to see later in the book of Philippians, we think of others and their interests and their needs, just, not just our own needs and interests. And as Paul begins this book that is just overflowing with this joy-filled life, he immediately starts by just saying we're servants. Servants. Now, I know this is countercultural to everything the world says we need in order to find joy. The world says, look out for yourself. The world says, hey, girl, you're worth it. I'm sorry, girls and guys, the only thing we deserve is hell. We're not worth it. But God in his love and in his mercy, because he is so glorious and so beyond comprehension, has saved us, and then he has saved us to be his servants. What a beautiful thing. So even though the Apostle Paul was mightily used of God, he introduces himself and Timothy as servants, reminding us that we're just simply servants of the king. But he goes on in verse number one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So yes, we're servants, but also we're saints. Now the Greek word for saints here is hagios. Pardon me if I'm butchering the Greek, okay? Um, but the, the Greek word there is hagios. Now depending on the version of the Bible that you have, this word gets translated as holy about 160 times. The primary way this Greek word here for saints gets translated is holy. It gets translated as saints like it does here about 60 times, and then there's about another handful of times where it gets translated as holy ones. And what it means is, it means pure. It means morally blameless. It means we are consecrated or set apart. And this word, the way it gets used throughout Scripture, serves two purposes. The first is often... It's often used as an identity statement, like, what Paul, like how Paul is using it here, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Because Christ died for our sins, we are positionally made holy with him. We have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. He says in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Because our position is in Christ, we are made holy. We are saints. 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10 says, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has been made evident now through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. 
who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We didn't earn this position. Christ earned it for us and gave it to us, not because we're so great, but because of the glory of his name. We become saints in Christ. We don't achieve this through works of righteousness, but by faith. But get this, this word also tells us that while we don't earn holiness by the way we live, because we are made holy, that changes the way we live. And so the second part of this verse shows us that as we live by faith, we grow in works of righteousness. We don't get saved by works of righteousness, but there are works of righteousness because you are saved. We see this on repeat throughout the New Testament, Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, identity statement, holy and dearly loved, identity statement. That word holy there is the same word as saints here in Philippians. Get this, because you are saints, because you are made holy in Christ Jesus as God's chosen ones, what? Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What Paul is saying here is because Christ made you holy, put on some holy behavior. Ephesians 1.4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He chose us in him, identity, salvation, to be holy and blameless. That's our lifestyle. Again, in Ephesians, we see the pos- how our position in Christ changes our lifestyle. Our position as saints or holy ones informs the way we live our lives. Paul demonstrates this later in chapter 3 of Philippians. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What an amazing statement. I can't wait to preach Philippians 3. He goes on, because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Paul here is declaring his position in Christ. He's saying this wasn't something I earned. Christ earned it for me. But he goes on and says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Because Christ had taken hold of Paul, Paul says, I'm dedicating my life to live like Jesus. I'm going to dedicate my life to follow Christ, to be holy like he is holy. I'm going to dedicate my thoughts. I'm going to dedicate my behaviors. I'm going to dedicate my attitudes. I'm going to dedicate my works because Christ has taken a hold of me, and that's so amazing, and I'm so secure in him. I'm going to do everything that I can with all of who I am to live a life that just brings him glory. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, identity statement, this is who you are. Positionally, we are children of God. But then Peter tells us, because we are God's children, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Don't live like you did before you got saved. But as the one who has called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Again, that word means pure, morally blameless, consecrated, or set apart. And so Paul reminds us in Christ, yes, we are servants, but we are saints. And that gives us eternal security, and it also informs the way we live our lives. So here's our definition of saints. All believers 
chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and set apart for God and to become morally upright and pure, imitating God's holiness. Because Christ has taken a hold of us. What an amazing truth. He made us saints. And now we get to dedicate our lives. And it's not something that we just have to try and do in our own strength. God has given us the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us to enable our holy living. As Paul continues to address this church, he reminds them that they are in Christ. And that has an impact on the way they live their lives. He also includes at the end of verse um, one, the overseers and deacons. I, I love how he addresses the entire church before he addresses the leaders. Paul's not playing favorites <laughs> with people who hold positions. He puts the leaders in the same box as everyone else. You'll also notice that overseers, this is synonymous with pastors or elders, depending on uh, the passage or the translation that you're using, are plural. Throughout scripture, you always see more than one leader in a local context. These are the people that care for the spiritual state of the church. He also mentions the deacons. These are the leaders who care for the physical needs of the church. They're the ones who make sure people's needs get met. I've been so thankful for how Jeremy and Red have just stepped up as our deacons these past two weeks to make sure this church can continue to move forward. They are modeling for us what it means to be a humble servant of God who lives a holy life. And so as Paul begins this book, he reminds us that we're servants, we're saints. And then thirdly, he reminds us that grace and peace come from God and Jesus through the word. At the beginning of the book of Philippians, Paul is sharing grace and peace to them. That's why in verse 2, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice how he ends the book of Philippians. Philippians 4, 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so what Paul is saying is you will begin to experience grace and peace as you as a church begin to read this word from the Lord. And then that grace will go with you as you finish reading this word from the Lord. That's why it ends or begins and ends with grace and peace. So as they receive this word from the Lord, Paul says this is going to be a conduit of God's grace and peace in your life. Now I want us to notice the titles that he uses for God and Jesus as he points them to givers of grace and peace. He calls God our Father. By using the title of Father, Paul points to God's goodness and his kindness. And he's reminding us that God is our Abba. God is the one that just comes alongside of us and meets us as our perfect heavenly Father, ministering to us his comfort through his Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 15, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back in, into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It's the Holy Spirit of God who comes into us, bringing us eternal comfort, and through the Spirit's leading, we can cry out to God, God, you're my Father. You are my Abba. All the love and the warmth and the care of our perfect Father in heaven is providing for us grace and peace through his word. Like many of you, church, the word of God has been such a lifeline these past two weeks. Our perfect heavenly Father pours out his comfort and his love and his grace and peace to us through his word, the Bible. Let me encourage you, prioritize your time in God's word. This isn't the time to just put the Bible aside. This is the time to make it your lifeline. This is how God pours out grace and comfort and conviction and challenges and warnings 
But this is how God guides us. This is how God directs us. This is how God leads us to be holy, how he leads us to be more like him. Ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you speak to me through your word this morning? Ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit, would you just give me what your soul needs? And then open up your Bible with this heart of expectant faith that he is going to speak to you. I've just been taking it one psalm at a time. And it's amazing how every day the Spirit just says, here's the verse you need. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not reading chapters and chapters and chapters. But once the Spirit gives me that word, there's just this meditation and this prayer that comes from it. Because the Spirit is saying, Nick, this is what I am telling you right now through my word. This is what you need right now in this moment. Open up your Bible with a heart of expectant faith. This isn't just a book. This is the word of God. The word of God that spoke the universe into existence. The word of God that changes people's lives. The word of God that has transformed our lives and brought this church here into a spirit of unity and family. It is the word of God. So every day, spend time in his word. Maybe this is a season where you're like, I just need to go get a new Bible. I'm all for anybody getting a new Bible. Come see me. I'll help you pick out a new one. I will vicariously live through you because my wife tells me I have too many. But get in God's word. I, I, I understand there's apps and all that's great. But go old school. <laughs> Hold it in your lap so there's no distractions. There's no notifications. There's no dings. And just, God, just you and me. I need your word. You're my father. And I need you, Dad. I need you. Life's a mess. I need you. Holy Spirit, give me, give me what my heart needs because right now I don't even know. I need grace and peace. <laughs> Paul is saying grace and peace to you. Grace is going to go with you after you read this. God, I need that grace and peace right now. And watch as he ministers to your soul through his word. But Paul doesn't just point us to God our Father, as beautiful and amazing as that is. No, 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 no. He gives us even more. He also points out that grace and peace come from our Lord Jesus Christ. By using the title Lord, Paul is reminding us of the power and authority that Jesus has as sovereign ruler because of the finished work on the cross. So this isn't just words of comfort that we're like, ah, no, there's power and there is authority behind these words. All the power and authority that Jesus has because he is sitting at the right hand of the Father who God has allowed to rule and reign over all the earth because of the finished work of the cross is what is providing for you grace and comfort and peace right now. Sometimes somebody will try to say something nice, right? And you're just like, okay. It's a nice cliche, but it kind of rings hollow. Nothing rings hollow with Jesus because he has all the power and all the authority and he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is ruler over all. He is the one who is saying, I am giving you grace and peace through my word. So we have all the amazing comfort of the Father backed by all the power and authority of the sovereign ruler of the world. And he uses that power and authority as Lord to provide grace and peace through his word. Now, while grace and peace are promised to us because of the finished work of Christ, they're ours. They're promises. We don't have to earn them. 
but we do have to position ourselves to experience them. It's not earning. Christ earned it on the cross. But God has said, I have earned this for you. I have given this to you as a gift. This is how you experience that gift. And throughout Scripture, we are told how to experience it. We've mentioned it this morning, spending time in his word. Later in chapter 4, Philippians 6 through 7, Paul says, don't worry about anything. <laughs> That's a fun verse right now. Okay. But in everything, this, this, is, this is the lifeline right here. Through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it makes no sense, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I love the word picture that paints. It paints this uh, picture of protective power that comes around our minds and our hearts as we spend time with God in prayer. As you give those requests to God, as you're saying, okay, don't worry about anything, that's a command. God, I got a whole list of worries right now, let me just list them all out to you. As you give those to God through prayer and with thanksgiving, you present those to God, God and his Holy Spirit's gonna come around you and he's like, I'm gonna guard your mind right now. I'm gonna guard your heart right now. I'm gonna guard it from this restless spirit that leads to anxiety or depression or, or whatever it is. God's saying, I'm gonna guard you, I'm gonna protect you. And so as we spend time with God, he protects us from having a restless soul. And we can be at peace because we are in Christ. We do this through faith, but also with humility, the Bible tells us. James 4, 6, God gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Boy, these last two weeks have been humbling, haven't they? But God says, as you are humbled, I give you grace. Watch out for that pride. That, that, that's a surefire way to sidestep God's grace. God flat out says, I will resist the proud. Strong language. That's, that's a warning passage that we need right now. Because it's easy in these seasons to allow self-righteousness to creep up in our hearts and we can get proud. And God says, watch out. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so living a life of humble dependence on God and his word is the conduit of experiencing his grace and peace. In conclusion, from an earthly perspective, Paul's life seemed like a mess, didn't it? In prison, awaiting trial, unsure if he would live or die. Clearly, he ain't living his best life now, right? And yet, despite that, he was able to experience confident joy that was beyond anything this world could offer because he was in Christ. Those two little words that change everything. In Christ. And as a church, we also find ourselves, different circumstances obviously, but in a season that, to put it mildly, isn't going to make the church highlight video. But like Paul, we can experience confident joy that's beyond anything this world can offer. Why? Because we are in Christ. So let's live as servants of God because we're in Christ. What an awesome way to live our lives as servants to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's remind ourselves that we're saints. We're set apart. And that position as saints changes the way we live. We are destined to live holy lives. God created us before the foundation of the world to do good works, to glorify his name. So let's remind ourselves we are saints who are destined to live holy lives. And let's position ourselves 
so that grace and peace can be with our spirit, like the end of the book says. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us as a church. Lord, we need grace and peace. But because of what you've done, those are available to us, promised to us. I pray that we as a church would give ourselves to serving you, that we would give ourselves to those who need you, that we would give ourselves to each other as family, serving you by serving each other. We'd give ourselves to your word. We would give ourselves to holy living. And that we, like the Apostle Paul in the church of Philippi, would experience a confident joy that is so far beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine. We ask this in your name. Amen.